Welcome to Garden DC, the podcast about everything gardening in the Washington DC and Mid-Atlantic region. I'm your host, Kathy Gents. I'm the editor of Washington Gardener Magazine, and we're aimed at gardening enthusiasts, people who grow everything from edibles to ornamentals, natives to exotics. If it grows in our area, that's what we talk about. Welcome to episode 165 of the Garden DC podcast. In this episode, we chat with garden writer Margaret Roach all about gardening and the weather. The plant profile is on Hardy Banana. And we share what's going on in the garden as well as some upcoming local gardening events in the What's New segment. We close out with the last word on growing container strawberries by Christy Page at the Food Gardening Network. This episode, we're joined by Margaret Roach. She is a leading garden writer, and you have probably seen her work in Martha Stewart Living, Newsday, one of her three books. Maybe you've listened to her public radio podcast or visited her website, awaytogarden.com. And we are so happy to have her with us. Let's welcome Margaret Roach. Hi. Hey, Margaret. How are you doing? Okay. You know, in the new normal, you mean, of gardening and weather and all that Mm -hmm. kind of good stuff? (laughs) Yeah, so our subject for this episode is all about gardeners and weather, and I think that topic we could probably base a whole podcast on, not just one episode, right? We could just go on and on. Yeah, I think it's, it's, yeah, lots changing, and I know um, the last few years, maybe four seasons I've been doing the New York Times garden column every week. And the editor there s- says a lot of the time, she says, you know, we really, we need to do more about, you know, we're always talking about those topics. She and I about, you know, what about drought? What about too much rain? What about flooding? What, about, you know, those types of things. Um, Cause it's, it's really important. It's on gardeners minds. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And for a newspaper deadline, like in the New York Times and stuff, you want to be super seasonal and hyper on point. So if there was just a major weather event, you can talk about that right then or on your blog. Um, And then other types of garden writing, um, say your book, you can be more contemplative about what happened and and summing it up. Or if you're writing for a magazine, that deadline might have already passed. Yes, I I call it horticultural how-to and woo-woo. The how-to being obviously what you said, the immediate got to do this now and here's how to do it. And the woo-woo being more the, as you said, contemplative um, mm-hmm. and emotional and just beautiful part. You know? mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> and giving it some, some deep thought maybe. Yeah. Or not so much, just acting emotionally as we, most of us do when we get angry about something in the garden. <laughs> <laughs> never happens to me, Kathy. Never, never, never lose my, never lose my patience with it. <laughs> it's always the way, right? You open yeah. the door or go out to the vegetable plot and turn the corner to shock, and you're like, "Whoa! I did not see that tree branch that came down overnight and is now smashed all my tomatoes." Yep. Yep. Yeah. So we'll get hot and heavy into that in a minute, but first we want to dial back to baby margaret Uh uh-oh all the way back and maybe talk about your origins and how you got into gardening in the first place and then transfer that into a career in garden writing um so we always like to ask our guests were they born with chlorophyll in their veins and a green thumb or did that come later in life for you Mm. well i had a grandmother uh who was a keen gardener and so I think that was as as with many people I know who garden, there is mm-hmm. someone in their in in their lineage, you know, who they recall. Uh, for me, you know, she had a like wisteria vine over the pergola on her patio, and you know, I can remember the things dripping down, you know, the sort of hanging down. And you know, you have these visual images, and she loved zinnias and marigolds and bright colored flowers. And I can remember in her kitchen, which was yellow, she had a lot of which were uh, fashionable at the time fiesta wear those bright colored glazed bowls and you know yellows and oranges and so forth and greens and excuse me and she you know um so the zinnias the marigolds all that kind of vivid color so i have those recollections those visceral sort of almost recollections but um it's not that she taught me to garden literally um but but yeah so that was an influence and 
Um, really, for me, it was that I was a I, I was a journalist. I was starting out in journalism at the New York Times, actually, and um, uh, you know, as a copy girl, which is what it used to be called, and then a clerk, and then a news assistant, and you know, working my way up. And um, I had some some personal things happen in the family. My father uh, died. My mother uh, got early onset Alzheimer's disease when I was in my earlier mid twenties. And, you know, was a young journalist and um, I was called home. Essentially, I was, you know, the one who had to be responsible and I was called home to live at the house that I'd grown up in and sort of manage her care. And so uh, that meant being in a suburban house with a yard and in a very unfortunate, sad situation indoors. And so I found myself out in the yard sort of cutting things down and digging things up. And you know what I mean? The sort of, um, what would you call it? Like horticultural therapy, I mm -hmm. guess, you know, because there I was, you know, 24, or 25 or 26 years old. It was a few years. And um, so I just started doing projects and I got some garden books and, and so on and so forth. So that was, it was really sort of a survival thing. It was compa a companion a distraction um, from a sad situation. And then it just stuck. And then, again, I was a journalist. My journalism and my horticulture, emerging horticulture skills kind of merged into one thing. So that's the longest, long-ish short story. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I think right. a lot of us can certainly relate to, you know, finding solace in the garden yeah. or yeah. getting obsessed with something that takes us away from our everyday life and woes and everything, so to speak, and just being able to go out there and, you know, hack at some weeds or do some, I call it aggressive pruning. Yeah. Um, where you just take out your your emotions on that. And then, you know, also nurturing something into life. That, I think, speaks to a lot of us um, who are maybe going through some issues and being able to turn to the garden and do that. Yes, absolutely. I mean, it is uh, it is definitely a refuge and, and it has all those, there's, there's hope just around the corner. You know, you, you just there's just so much, so many miracles and so forth. And then there's also disappointments. So it's both, it's both sides of the story, but I, I went to it. I was drawn to it in this very desperate time. Um, and it kind of saved me, you know, the, it, it was something that was optimistic compared to what I was facing and it stuck, you know, so I became a lifelong gardener. Um, from that time, and you know, I took courses at New York Botanical Garden, and 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 so forth. Nothing, nothing official, because again, I was working um, mm -hmm. first at the Times, and then eventually at Newsday, where I did become the garden editor once I had learned enough, and um, and then at Martha Stewart, same thing. And you know, so uh, yeah, so I I cultivated <laughs> plants, and I cultivated knowledge about about the plants, and so forth. Mm -hmm. And it's so great to hear about those columns uh, just because they are disappearing, not just newspapers across the country, but also the garden columns are either shrinking or have totally disappeared as well. Yes. I, I, it, at the, like the first week of the pandemic or the second week, I had a call from the Times and I haven't worked there in a million years. Um, and I was kind of retired in general anyway, just doing my own thing. And um, and the editor who used to at, uh, edit, Ann Raver, who was a great garden writer um, and friend uh, years ago for the Times, uh, said, you know, I know your name. And, you know, I wondered, you know, there's this pandemic and everybody's gardening and <laughs> everybody's ordering seeds and um, is sh shut in at home. And would you write a column for us? And you know what I mean? It was it, it came out of that. It was a silver lining, so to speak, to that very dark moment. So mm -hmm. that's how I got back into full-time garden writing <laughs> at my advanced age. Yeah. Um, and I could see, you know, why newspapers across the country are, are shrinking their space because of advertising and loss of all that stuff. But there is so great a need and not just from the pandemic, but just people getting to that age where they're buying their own home and then they're starting to look around and say, Oh, I want to grow something. Where do I learn how to grow? Um, so yeah. having that hometown yeah. newspaper column 
for somebody who told you what to do in your area, that's lacking for a lot of people these days. Yeah, I know that I knew Adrian Higgins, mm-hmm. uh, who was obviously the post, the Washington Post's um, garden writer for so long. It's so amazing. And, um, you know, we did some things together and he came and visited and whatever. Um, but um, I see that Tova Martin has been writing some pieces now, uh, who lives up kind of nearer to me, but is a long time very expert garden writer and author, and, and she's been writing um, pretty steadily for them lately. So that was nice to see. In fact, I just wrote her a note the other day. I said, oh, I see you're doing things in the post. You know, because it's, it's great when you see one of the big papers devote some space to serious garden writing, I, I think. Mm-hmm. I think it's so important at this moment in the environment and um, with all of what's going on. And also just like we were saying before, for the refuge, for the psychological, for just the exhalation, you know, the oh, okay, this feels good. This is pretty. (laughs) You know, we could all use a little of that. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about your garden. So you're based in Hudson Valley, New York, and I think that's zone 5, 5B? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. so it's it's kind of, I'm, if you can visualize kind of where um, Connecticut and Massachusetts and New York might come together. So I'm not over by the Hudson River, but I'm still technically in part of the Hudson Valley. I'm in the easternmost part of it that's adjacent to those other two states, Connecticut and Massachusetts, near the Berkshire Mountains of Massachusetts. And I'm in a, a rural farming area. Um, it's much more popular now than it used to be. I was a weekender here. Or I guess I got the place maybe as a weekender 30-something, 35 or so years ago. And um, I've been full-time for about 16 years um, and now it's, you know, popular, a lot of people as you know, all over the country during the pandemic, again, uh, you know, transitioned to their weekend places and ended up staying. So we have a lot more people here than we used to, but it's still rural farming. I'm on an upland site, a hilly site, um, in the foothills of these Berkshire mountains. And, um, yeah, so a couple of acres, maybe two in a third acres um, inside a big, big, big fence because <laughs> we have big, big, big herds of deer. Mm. Um, and um, yeah, so I've been gardening the same spot for more than 35 years. Hmm. And what type of soil do you have there? So we got hilly. Is it very rocky? What's interesting, I think I got during the last last glaciation or whatever, as they receded, I, I think I got the only soil around here on these on these hills because I have plenty and I don't hit ledge or anything, but many of my neighbors do. So you, you know how that is in any given uh, steep sort of sloping area, you'll see pockets of the one and, and outcrops of the other. So, um, I, but I have good soil. It's, um, you know, loamy and not, not super clay or anything, definitely not sandy. And um, I don't know, it's, it seems perfectly fine. I will say the one sad thing in recent years is that, uh, and I believe you have them in your area, uh, not necessarily your literal area, but in the states around you as well. Um, you know, we do have Asian jumping worms um, mm. present mm-hmm. in an increasing number in, in New England. And so that's doing a lot of destructive, um, you know, a lot of damage to the topsoil layers. So that's making a new challenge um, to those of us who are sort of connected to the soil and aware of its condition. Um, hmm. So, yeah. I mean, I know they have them in Maryland. They have them in yep. a number of counties in Virginia and so on and so forth. I, I, you know, so it's it's 38 states now that they're in. Yikes. Yeah. And so it sounds like we can transition to our big topic, weather now, and maybe bring those Asian, Asian jumping worms into it to say um, those are a kind of new phenomenon. Um, at least in the United States, and spreading from state to state. And is weather maybe one factor in helping them spread now or their new introduction or that they're able to winter over? Yeah. So what I've read and the people that I've interviewed who have been studying them for the last decade or so, University of Wisconsin-Madison, University of Vermont, and and elsewhere, um, you know, they've been in the country technically since the early 1900s. Uh, they came in on pots of plants and so forth, uh, but they never proliferated um, until much more recent years. And um, in areas as diverse as the Smoky Mountains and the Great Lake area, 
they have, and New England up to Maine, they have proliferated recently. So we know that earthworms do benefit, and by that I mean, are they able to bear more than one generation in colder areas where otherwise maybe they couldn't in a short season? So they may have some advantage like many animals do to the slightly longer frost-free season or slightly longer warmer season in in their reproductive habits, you know, so they may proliferate because of that. Um, I, I haven't seen a report that says, yes, this is a climate change related thing, but I have seen research on earthworms in general saying, and many other animals, <laughs> including many insects that say, oh yeah, give them an extra couple of days or weeks of favorable conditions and uh-oh, you might have a bumper crop. <laughs> so I'm laughing. I'm actually crying on the inside. Mm-hmm. But but you have to you have to kind of laugh and you have to study. You have to do your homework. You have to learn. You have to attend seminars. You have to read research. You have to become informed. But you also have to try to keep a positive attitude because gardening is too much work with or without Asian jumping worms. You know what I mean? You could get bogged down if you looked at it only as the dark side, right? As the hard part. Mm-hmm. And we laugh so we don't cry. Exactly. That's <laughs> my yeah, deal. If you start focusing on the negatives, um, you know, the deer broke through the fence here. Yeah. Uh, we had yeah. a deluge of rain after a drought, you know, then we could, um, you know, never pick up a garden trowel again, which, you know, does happen. Some people do throw up their hands sure. and, and quit. And I see that on occasion. But gardening is, um, like you alluded to, a hobby or pastime or obsession for a lot of us of optimism because you're planting that seed, betting that something's coming from that seed. Right. Hope springs eternal. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So you alluded to the lengthening um, growing calendar for a lot of us. And so that would be a few more weeks in the spring or a few later weeks in the fall that we're able to garden. What are you seeing in the last two decades or so in your garden? Drastic differences. And, And really, I would say that it's been cumulative, probably, you know, like so many things that change a little bit at a time. It sneaks up on you and then suddenly it's a cumulative amount that is like, whoa, this is a lot. You know, you go get over a tipping point, a threshold of some kind that it becomes big seeming and very obvious seeming. Um, so I think it began with more erratic weather patterns. You know, we at first years ago, we talked about, oh, remember the, you know, the old fashioned winters we had as kids or remember the old fashioned winters we even had, you know, as younger adults, you know, that kind of thing. And and how those changed because that was the most obvious difference initially but of course, as I got more knowledgeable about um, some of these topics related to to the garden um, and the climate and so forth, you know, it's it's also more days that are slightly um, warmer and and so forth. You know, the ground is freezes deep. You know, dot 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 dot. So many different things that affect so many different organisms and set off or fail to set off different processes that are that we quote think, you know, supposed are supposed to happen at a given time or not. (laughs) And Mm -hmm. so it's all out of sync. I mean, I think we know for sure, all of us do in our own places, if we've lived there more than a short time, we know that the unexpected is more the norm now and dramatic episodes. Like I had two, a little over two and a quarter inches of rain in, you know, 45 minutes or so this morning. And that's become a very normal thing here in the Northeast is to have enormous downpours will go weeks and weeks without rain, especially in the spring lately, mm-hmm. which is very unusual for the Northeast to not have spring rains. So we'll have a drought or in early summer, we'll have a drought, but then it'll start raining and it'll really rain. So you'll have, you know, three inches one day and four days later you have an inch and a half. And then it used to be sort of, we would say the old gardening books and so forth would say, make sure your plants are getting an inch of rain a week, either from you or the sky, you know, and, and, you know, you could kind of in the Northeast count on an inch a week. We had in the low forties of inches per year was our average rainfall. So, you know, other than the driest or the uh, times you got about an inch every week 
or thereabouts, you know, but now some weeks you get five and some weeks or two or three, you don't get any. And so it's, it's kooky. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Yeah. I would say same thing here in the mid-Atlantic. Yes. We're just yes. getting pummeled yes. by a storm or you have two or three weeks of drought, but it's that dry spring, especially this year's oh. May oh. was just uh, I don't want to say bleak, but yeah, brutal. That was yeah. rough when Absolutely. plants are trying to push out the most tremendous amount of growth. And, you know, I'm not a fan of dragging around hoses or supplemental watering, but I'm, you know, looking at irrigation systems at this point because I don't know how I'm going to cope and devote all that time to hand watering. Well, I think that's a really good point. And um, I think we have to, with our eyes wide open, we have to decide what strategies we're going to take into the next however many years of gardening. And and so that's a good one. Are we equipped for watering needs, whatever they might be, too much or too little? Are we equipped? equipped? You know, so I've been, I had, um, you know, to really think about that myself. And last year we had a drought early in the summer for a number of weeks. And this time, as you point out, it came both here and where you are in this earlier spring in May. And both times my inclination was, um, I'm going to skip the vegetable garden. And I know that sounds maybe drastic, but again, I'm in a farming community. I have a lot of neighbors who are young organic farmers and, you know, farmers markets and farm stands and, you know, friends who grow food. And so I thought to myself, I'm not going to, I know I'm not going to, with my workload, I'm not going to go out there every day. I'm not going to be spot watering, you know, in these crazy aberrant conditions. And so that was one thing I decided until I have a proper um, irrigation system that I feel like I can count on. Um, I have a well, you know, I'm a, again, I'm a rural, dwe- rural dweller. And so I have a well, so, you know, you protect your well um, when you you don't want to do anything crazy <laughs> mm-hmm. and, and harm it. So, um, but yeah, you have to make, you have to make decisions. So an irrigation system is figuring that out is important to me right now for certain areas. If I want to intensively grow vegetables again, for instance. Mm-hmm. And are you a water hoarder, which I call myself one just because I have the rain barrel and then I fill oh, up every right. possible bucket or container as when we do get those blessed rains. Yeah, I haven't been. Um, and that's one of the things I've been thinking about. So is uh, how can I channel some of this water to a more productive um, direction or can I, you know, really, uh, again, I'm on a really hilly site. It's a tricky site. So um, it, yeah, it's, uh, I'm not sure. Uh what I'm going to end up doing, but yes, I've been exploring uh, both the irrigation stuff and um, the rain barrels are really tempting, but I, where I am, where the house is located, where I could uh, collect water off the roof, you know, is, uh, you know, a lot of narrow spots and a lot of uneven spots and so forth. So it's, it's just kind of a, a weird, a re- weird location um, mm-hmm. for a big, cause they're, they're, you know, they need to be ample and I would need a number of them, I think. Yes. Or a cistern system, something right. buried or something, which, right. you know, if you could wave a magic wand and start over from the beginning. Oh, totally. You know, an <laughs> underground cistern that could hold those. That would be rains. amazing, right? Oh, yeah, and that be a geo- dream. And a geothermal system to operate all your um, oh, yeah. plumbing heating. <laughs> um, but, you know, again, I'm in an 1880 house, mm-hmm. so on uh, perched on a, up on a hillside. <laughs> so I'm not digging any cisterns today, but maybe tomorrow. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but, yeah. but, you know, you learn, again, you learn to really um, evaluate as you did. You know, you were thinking about, okay, this is not going to work unless I have an improved system. You know, you're, you're, you're being honest with yourself about the watering um, pressure, right? That, you, that you're going to need more, uh, a better system or it's not going to happen. Yep. No? Yeah. Or until my back gives out. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so that's true as well. So we talked about too little rain, too much rain, sometimes flooding events. I know your, um, I'm going to call him compatriot, Ken Druce. Yeah. Um, wrote almost his one book and the name is just escaping me now where he describes the flooding of his garden and the inundation and the recovery from that. Sure. He lives on a a little sort of almost like an Island within a river. Um, 
like he's almost like surrounded by water technically. I mean, it, it's not, you wouldn't realize that if you first pulled up to the driveway or something, but, um, but yeah, so there's water, a canal, it really is a canal right next to him. And so, yes, they do have flooding. Um, they recently, uh, added some, <clears throat> some, uh, levels to the wall between them and the area of the canal where they experienced the most regular flooding during big rain events. Uh, they put a, you know, a couple of more tiers of stone or whatever on that area. And that's really helped this last year. So that was their thing, you know, as they said, okay, let's try triage first. Let's try that. So. Yeah. yeah and I think he's been there a number of years, so he knows the pattern now and how it comes. <laughs> exactly. And when I was reading his writings, I was amazed actually at how quickly the garden recovered from flooding inundation. Like you would think being under, a, yes. you know, a couple of feet of water that all of these plants would drown or disappear. A lot of them are just get swept away, but it's amazing how tenacious and tough they are. Yes, it is. It, it is. Uh, but for some people, that's not the case. It depends on the soil and so forth. He has a fast draining soil. I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's very, very good point. So <clears throat> in our heavy clay soils, that might be. No the death knell for a lot of plants or you might be just a lot of silt fill in or something else might happen because of that flood. Exactly. So, Mm -hmm. so again, no taking stock of your conditions and also your own, I call them tolerances, like what you can handle and what you're actually going to do or not do and being honest about it and comparing the two lists, you know, (laughs) Um, I think we all have to do that right now. Mm -hmm. And I think that's kind of, um, I don't call it a game of gardening, but, you know, that guessing game, like right, betting right. that uh, our first and last frost dates and, and guesstimating around them. So maybe let's turn to talking a little bit about those first and last frost dates. And I know I've been pushing the first frost dates or, you know, the, the ones that I thought I could start planting in early March, some of my peas and things. I'm now actually planting in early February um, and making that bet that they will be able to survive. Wow. That's pretty great. (laughs) Yeah. And that was like, uh, you know, five, seven years ago, I would never have thought to put peas in the ground around uh, Valentine's day. I would have thought you were crazy. (laughs) Like February was the worst month of the year, but the last few years I've started peas, you know, that week and maybe thrown a frost blanket or something over them a few nights, but generally left them alone and they did well. Wow. Yeah. I mean, it's definitely, uh, I always thought we could have frost into Memorial day and that we could get it again in mid to late September. And now it's usually more like, um, mid May early, you know, early to mid May, uh, mid May. Mm-hmm. And I mean, we had that said, we had a late freeze in like the third week of May this year, a real freeze, not just a frost. And um, and then it's many years now going into October, first or second week of October easily. Yeah, I would say similar here that we, we say Mother's Day was the all clear date. And then somewhere around Halloween was when you would, you know, you're pretty much ending your vegetables or your annual flowers at that point. Right. But, um, and then there's, you know, because that's an average, you know, there's a couple outliers that you have to kind of panic around (laughs) and go around and do some protection. What are your favorite ways to protect things? Should that panic set in and the weather guy says, Oop, early frost or late frost. Yeah. I mean, for me, it's usually, it's usually the ones in May that get me because I have a lot, I, I, I love large leafed ornamental plants. Mm -hmm. So I have a lot of things that have big leaves and they come up early and the leaves are very vulnerable. Astelboides is one of them and Rogersia, all kind of astilbe relatives. Um, And so those, it's tricky because they're big and so I have to kind of set up some stakes and drape a cloth over it just to keep the frost from, you know, settling on them. Um, so I do a lot of almost like pens, you know, and then P-E-N-S, I mean, um, mm-hmm. pens of, well, I guess you spell either kind of pen that way, but, you know, 
I, I make a little cage around them and, um, and, and drape something over it. Yeah. So there's that, but I mean, I've been known to turn wheelbarrows upside down over plants and buckets and you name it um, when it's really been bad. The worst thing is hail and mm. a lot more people are seeing hail and that's extremely destructive. Yeah. I was going to bring that up next too, that hail <laughs> events are just, you know, so heartbreaking because what are you going to do? Um, put a giant, you know, dome over your garden. There's really yeah. no way to protect. No. And it destroys crops. It destroys, you know, your hostas are full of holes. Um, and it's so unpredictable. Um, you know, hail was something I would see often with my friends, say, in the Boulder, Denver, Colorado area, that that would be a regular event for them. But yeah, more and more for us on the East Coast. Absolutely. Absolutely. And um, it's my unfavorite, you know, wind um, and hail are my unfavorite, the most destructive things, I think. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. yeah. So wind, you know, we want to breeze. Who doesn't want to breathe, especially on a hot, humid day? Um, and it helps keep down things like powdery mildew and some of the fungal diseases. But yeah, wind can be so destructive. And again, nothing that most gardeners can control. The no. only thing we could probably do is um, try to trellis things, try to tie things up. But then if you tie them too tight, uh, that can be a problem too. Right. And I think it recognizing that the additional sort of violent nature of weather in this modern era, some of the old time gardening advice, like with pruning, you know, is to always remove your, we would call them the three Ds, the dead, damaged, and diseased um, parts of our woody plants as they appeared, like not at a given season, but if you see a damaged branch in something, a shrub or a tree, if you see a dead or diseased branch, take it out when you see it. And the, and the reason I'm bringing that up is because by doing that, you're reducing the number of potentially weak or wobbly things that can start blowing around or flapping around and break, breaking three other branches in the process, you know? So keeping things as tidy as possible, especially our woody plants, doing a yearly, um, having a relationship with a good arborist, I think, um, if you live in an area where there's a lot of older trees especially, um, and, you know, like really looking at, hey, does this one need to be, um, you know, uh, cleaned up a little bit or whatever, you know, really keeping an eye on them and not just waiting till something happens. And, and, and none of this is 100% going to prevent everything. I'm just saying, don't ask for extra trouble. So mm -hmm. preventive maintenance, I guess, is, is what I'm talking about. Yeah. And that's such a great point to be able to have um, an arborist come out, look at your trees, try to thin out some of that dead wood, try to predict, you know, some of the lifetime he might or she might be able to say um, this one maybe in 15 years we'll need to take down. We'll keep an eye on this one. Um, so at least you get a little bit of ideas on things. But I know, Margaret, since you've been a longtime gardener, that you've experienced this situation, which is overnight a tree, a large tree comes down and a shade garden is now a full sun garden. How do you Absolutely. cope with that? Absolutely. Uh, well, I've, I've had that happen. I, mm -hmm. I, I've had that happen. And um, so in one, because I've been here so long, I've had that happen more than once. In one case, I pretty successfully uh, introduced into the very large bed of what had been sort of bright shade loving or shade loving plants. Um, you know, once the cleanup was done, I introduced a young um, American fringe tree, Eastern fringe tree, a uh, Cyananthus virginicus, and um, also some other shrubs sort of around the perimeter so that I wasn't getting shade from a tree, but I was getting some shade from, you know, intermediate level things, you know, that then grew. So I didn't have 20 years to wait. <laughs> you know, for a tree to grow up and replace the old tree or something. So I kind of went with a smaller tree that had a multi-stemmed habit, so sort of arched out a little bit and 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 made some shade um, almost right away and, and some other, as I said, some other shrubs at the perimeter. So I reinvented a particular bed um, that way and the ground cover plants um, stayed and they've all done fine. They've all acclimated. Um, but yeah, I, I mean, 
what else what else do you really do yeah you can move them all to somewhere where there's more shade and then of course the opposite also mm-hmm. happens you stay in a place long enough and the garden beds that were sun beds are now shade beds so you have you know where you planted your bulbs umpteen years ago and they were in the sun now they're in the shade and they're not flowering reliably or whatever so that i mean i'm not going to take down the trees so <laughs> you know um, and, you know, limbing up or thinning isn't, is only going to go so far. Uh, but, you know, some plants have to be moved um, to get more light, right, to thrive mm-hmm. or just given up on, you know, say, I'm going to get rid of this because it's not the right spot anymore for this mm. plant. So, yeah, I think, you know, and then there's always when it gets a little bit more sun, maybe a branch comes down or something in that place, you've given up on those bulbs and said, yeah. oh, well. And then they pop up again, you know, yeah. a decade later. Well, what a wonderful you, surprise. They tell you when they're ready to, yeah, it's like, hey, I like it better now. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. This is better. Hey, thanks, mom. <laughs> yeah. And they were waiting there that whole time, which is wonderful. Yeah. 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 But, it, but yeah, I mean, the light, the light in a, a young garden versus the light in a, an older garden, again, because if, if you have woody plants involved, um, it's going to be drastically different. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think most people will say a garden is mature at 10 to 15 years. And that's when you get a lot of that shade and fill in. Yeah. Um, but you're going to have to expect to move things around if you want to keep them. Absolutely. And of course, we all initially plant, especially woody things, too close to one another. And so they don't have enough room to reach maturity, um, You know, their full width especially. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> you end up having to get rid of a lot of them just to make room. Yeah. Uh, I, I yeah. would say that's another sign of a mature garden is <laughs> is the editing and the giveaway phase rather than the acquisition phase. Yeah. Yeah. I don't, I mean, I don't get any, I don't buy plants or anything anymore. There's so <laughs> many plants. <laughs> so let's talk a little bit about snow. And I know that's a l- bit more of an issue for you north of us and do you have solid snow cover over the ground all winter long not anymore and that was what i was saying before like an old-fashioned winter that Mm -hmm. was definitely the case um now it's more not uh so you've got a lot of bare ground that's frozen Mm -hmm. yeah it's very different yeah so the patterns are definitely changing because for here you know we'll get a light snow just enough to barely cover the ground then it melts a day the next afternoon or even that afternoon or you'll get a couple inches and then that's gone in a couple days and then every once in a while every you know three years or so we'll get walloped by something big that you know maybe a foot maybe more and the big concern for us and probably for you is the weight of the snow pulling evergreens down yeah um, like sitting on top of the big southern magnolias and everybody's always worried about it snapping what do you think about that well and and so yes and it's very tricky to know what the right thing to do is so a storm is happening and do you let the snow just build up and then when it stops try to go out and do some remedial um, you know, brushing off of things, or is that going to snap? Is the brushing off going to be the thing that snaps them? And it depends on the temperature and it depends on the moisture content in the snow and how heavy that snow is. You know, when we have one of those heavy, wet snows, oh boy, I mean, you barely touch a branch and it can, you know, that's, that's weighted down under that and you can snap it. Um, or it can just snap from the weight of the stuff. So with light, with light, fluffy snow, I tend to, um, just be like, okay, the plants know how to handle this, but the stuff that scares me is the, is the heavy wet. And there's definitely been more, much more of that and more damage, um, mm-hmm. lately. Um, so yeah, so I, I have, um, I have definitely, I have a, I have this funny, you could call it a tool, but it's not really, it's a, a piece of, um, kind of quarter round, trim wood trim that you would like maybe put at the edge of a shelf or whatever if you were trimming a window or something it's just this very it's almost flexible it is flexible it's like this 15 foot long piece of trim that a carpenter might buy and then 
he would use it, you know, or she would use it and, you know, cut it into pieces and use it to finish a, a Getty cabinet or something like that. So it's quarter round and, um, and it, so it's kind of wobbly and it's this really long stick and I go, and I stick it up into the, the trees when the, before it, the snow accumulates too much and I kind of shake it around and it's not, it's so, it's such a, uh, a small, a delicate thing. It's sturdy, but delicate and it's mm-hmm. kind of wobbly. It's not stiff. Like I'm not beating them and, and it makes stuff fall off. So I have my crazy, you know, there's Margaret out there again. <laughs> um, you know, so we all have our, our nutty things, but I don't, I, I generally speaking, leaving it alone is probably safer than, than with heavy snow, especially than, mm-hmm. than messing with it. Um, it's, it's tricky. And only a gardener would be out there during a, a snowstorm poking things with this long <laughs> right. flexible rod. And I could see some entrepreneur right. out there rubbing their hands thinking, hmm, how do I repurpose this <laughs> product and sell it to gardeners? Right. Um, the, right. Snow, the snow poke. The, um, right. The snow wobbler. <laughs> or whatever. Right. Right. It's, it is. It's very funny. I mean, mm-hmm. but again, if you know your plants and you know the types of plants that you've had problems with before that seem vulnerable or the ones you've watched bend almost to the ground and you thought, oh my goodness, it's going to go, it's going to go. Those are the ones that you're going to eyeball when the next storm comes, right? To see if you can stay ahead of that and prevent that amount of buildup. Um, so I have a few very precious things that I really hate to lose that I keep an eye on is what I guess I'm saying. Mm-hmm. And yeah. you don't have a greenhouse, correct? No, never. Yeah. No. So that was my next thing that I was thinking about friends who do have greenhouses and they have to be up all night. Um, I'm talking about either professional greenhouses that they're watching those yes. um, glass roofs, or even if you have a hobby greenhouse at home and you're talking about the weight of the snow, not just um that it is snow, but just the weight of it bringing down those panes in an old greenhouse. Sure. Yeah, yeah. No, I, no, I wouldn't want the responsibility and it would be too hard here on the type of landscape that I have mm-hmm. Yeah, to do that. And I think the more modern greenhouses, of course, they have like um, coils or something that can warm up the roof. So it's, it's melting as it comes down. But yeah, yeah. the older ones you have to keep an eye on. And that brings us to the most dreaded topic i think even worse than hail and horrible winds and heavy wet snow is ice i i just an ice storm is just you know chill yourself to the bones you know take out your power lines and everything else but ice wrap wrap branches is just can be devastating especially during certain timing like when the sap is rising yeah in say fruit trees or anything um, how is your area for ice storms? Bad. I mean, and again, that's what we're getting. Uh, those types of extreme things is where we're seeing, you know, more of the the extreme events and 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 not regularly, but each season we're getting mm-hmm. those types of things. So yeah, and those are the ones where I would never touch anything, um, you know, because it's too brittle when it's encased in ice and you just have to let it go, like let it let it melt, you know, there's nothing you can do kind of the hands off. Yeah. And, and, and yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I I was at a conference for arborists once for training and that was their, you know, scariest nightmare situation was the ice situations (laughs) and, and they have to sometimes be out in it um, to take down something that might be, you know, leaning and so heavy with ice that it's, you know, about to take down the whole tree. Um, There's some scary nightmare situations there. But yeah, what are you going to do? Go out there with a giant blow dryer? You just have to um, wait and pray and, you know, to whatever gods you have and hope for the best at that point. Yeah. No, it's, it's, what what worries me, I think, about the weather, um, the aberrant weather a lot is, um, I don't see the, the same um, awakening sort of stages and process at mm-hmm. the beginning of the season and the same sort of shutting down gradually heading toward dormancy uh, in my cold zone uh, process in the fall. Like I don't see the plants getting what they're, what they evolved where they 
came from, where their ancestors came from, I don't see them having, like things don't seem to harden off in the fall. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's no like gradual fall easing into winter. It's like nothing happens and then suddenly it's winter one day. But it, you know, and, and I just think, wow, how are those buds and those twigs and are they really ready for, you know, being frozen right now? Cause they didn't get much of much practice along the way, mm-hmm. you know, and that's, that's the stuff that I, I really wonder. And I, I mean, so many things are blooming in the, in the earlier part of the year to me, a week or two weeks, at least out of sync, you mm-hmm. know, and I wonder what the plants think about that. And that's what, that's the kind of research and so forth that I'm going to be interested to see, um, you know, that, uh, the change in the timing of things, the, you know, um, what does that mean and and what plants can stand up to it? Yeah. Um, Yeah. Yeah, I think that whole science of phenology and the timing of, you know, when a bud breaks and when, uh, the insect emerges because of the warming of the soil, um, are they in sequence? Are they out of sequence with each other? Um, yeah, there's a lot being looked at right now and a lot of things that we're observing because, you know, we're out in the gardens and, and those keen gardeners are seeing it. Um, and it's the, I think this, you're talking about the going into fall to winter dormancy, but also breaking early dormancy because yes. you get those few days of really great warmth. 70 degrees in February we've yep. been having sometimes. And it's like, well, are they supposed to be awake or asleep? They don't know, mm-hmm. you know. And, and and on the other end, in other areas, like I have a friend who gardens in Nashville, well, uh, has a yard in Nashville, and and there was, you know, enormous freezes this winter, mm-hmm. and uh, last winter, and, um, you know, everybody there afterward, all the cherry laurels and, and so forth, the sort of ubiquitous evergreen shrubs that are around many, many, many suburban houses, they were all quote dead, or at least that's what everyone thought. So everybody pulled them out and threw them away. And I said to him, he sent me a picture and I said, no, just cut it to the ground and it'll resprout. And sure enough, he's the only one who has <laughs> his shrubs still alive. Because again, people are being caught experiencing weather they've never seen mm-hmm. and the impact on plants. That's not something that's normally seen in their zone, you know, to, to, to uh, winter kill your hardy shrubs, evergreen shrubs in Nashville is not something that happens all the time. Whereas we know kind of in the North, oh yeah, a lot of, you know, oh yeah. So that got kind of a lot of a late freeze or an early freeze got to it. Oh yeah. Well, we can just, you know, like um, cut it back and we can get it to regrow probably, you know, and there's, I mean, not everything, but a lot of things mm-hmm. do have that ability. And, and so we're more used to that. And, and so, yeah, he was, <laughs> He was like, really? And I was like, yeah, give it a try. What do you got to lose? You're going to yeah. save a lot of money. <laughs> I mean, procrastination pays off a lot. Right. <laughs> right. Waiting to take it out. And especially, I, I noticed this year, our crepe myrtles, um, the flowering was so late in the season yeah. because we did have the drought in the springtime, I think was part of the factors and the on and off warm, cold, warm, cold, out of sequence. So there's always that, but you know, every year is just a little bit different, but you learn the overall pattern, as you were saying earlier, over the course of many years. Yeah. And everybody, all the other creatures know it too. Um, you know, I have, I'm a bird person and I have like 70 different kinds of birds who come to the garden every year. And, and I, you know, I have a couple of species that I never saw it in the first 30 years I was here. And now I do, you know, they're, they've extended their ranges much farther North and I'm their regular members of the community here, you know, Carolina wrens and, um, and uh, black buzzards and, you know, other ones as well. And that's, that's the stuff where I'm getting the clues sometimes from other animals, not from the plants. And I'm wondering what the plants are thinking about it. Cause I know they're experiencing it too, mm-hmm. right? The drastic change too. And they can't migrate. They can't yeah. change their range, you know. Exactly. Yeah. And so how are the plants adapting or yeah. are they able to adapt? And then, you know, what's native now is not native in 10 to 20 years because that's, we're talking about a whole different climate. Well, and the restorationists, the restoration ecologists, when an area, you know, wants to be restored, a, a wild area um, wants to be restored by a conservation organization or whatever, 
there's a lot of dispute over whether to use things that were native there historically or to use things from a completely different zone because of how drastic the climate is change-wise and how much it's going to change in the future. So yeah, nobody knows the answer, right? Mm-hmm. Well, lots to think about, lots to explore. And if we had the funding to give these researchers, we would do so and, yeah. and see, but we'll keep an eye out on what the USDA and everybody else is telling us and, and our own local observations. And so Margaret, how can our listeners contact you or find out more? Oh, I'm easy to find. Um, um, I'm awaytogarden.com is my website, and I have a podcast and weekly newsletter and things like that at awaytogarden.com. And I'm the same name on Facebook, and I'm the same name on Instagram, um, awaytogarden. And it's not away like a and a new word, W-A-Y. It's, it is. It's two different words. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's, it's not away like a go away. It's away. It's just my way. It's not the way. So like, mm-hmm. I, I only have the answers that I figured out for myself I <laughs> to share. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. It's not the ultimate way. Yep. Um, I always look at the, the your title of your book, A Way to Garden, and I think about interview with the vampire, not a vampire. Oh, so. yes, exactly. <laughs> well, thank you. It's, it's not the way to garden. I like that it's a way to garden. Yes, exactly. Your way to garden which is perfect. And so wrapping up, Margaret, what would you say to those, especially beginning gardeners who um, maybe encounter a heartbreaking weather event um, early in the process? And what would you say to them? Oh, if I had a tally of all the plants I've lost from my lack of knowledge in the beginning or from trying to push the limits you know, a little bit of hubris uh, to uh, weather events, like you're saying, extreme events. Um, we all lose plants and don't give up. Just keep trying and and learning what's going to work for you based on your site and about and your abilities and your um, how much you're going to care you're going to give things. I mean, that's the formula, right? We've just got to keep experiment. I think it's a big experiment is, I guess, what I'm saying. And so you're not going to get it right the first time and try, try, try again, as they say, right? I mean, that's what I've been doing for, well, I've been a gardener for about 40 years. So that's what I've been doing for about 40 years is try, try, try again. (laughs) Yeah. Thank you so much, Margaret. It's nice to talk to you. Thanks for having me. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hardy Banana Plant Profile The hardy banana tree, Musa Bazju, gives a tropical look to temperate landscapes and is a fun conversation piece in the garden. It is also known as the Japanese banana or the hardy fiber banana. It is, in fact, not a tree at all, but one of the world's largest herbaceous perennials. The hardy banana can grow in USDA zones 4 to 10, and is native to Sichuan, China. This plant will produce lots of dramatic leafy growth, and if the season is long enough, you will get creamy yellow flowers that then form small, inedible fruits. The plant can reach 12 to 18 feet in height. After it flowers, the main pseudostem will die and then send out baby shoots around the mother plant that can be lifted and replanted or gifted to other gardeners. It prefers full sun, moist soil, and plenty of fertilizer to support the tremendous amount of growth it puts out in one season. The giant leaves of the hardy banana can get shredded in high winds. If you find the shredding unattractive, cite the plant where it will receive some wind protection. Hardy banana is perfectly hardy planted in the ground. It will die back when hit by a killing frost in late autumn When that happens, 
Cut the plant down to one foot high, surround it with a chicken wire cage or netting, and then pile on hay or leaves or other insulating mulch materials around the plant's crown. Here in the mid-Atlantic U.S., many gardeners don't bother doing the cutback and mulching. They simply let the fallen foliage act as a crown insulator and then clear out some of that as the growing season begins the following spring. Hardy banana, you can grow that. What's new in the garden this week? Well, I have to give a shout out to the panicle hydrangeas in my garden, which are blooming and looking beautiful despite the weeks of summer drought that we had. I have Pinky Winky, Little Lime, Quick Fire, a couple others, and they're all doing beautifully in the late summer, early fall season. Over at the community garden plot, I'm enjoying adding some of the herbs I'm growing to my home cooking, including lemongrass and the Thai basil. But I have special plans for the Genovese basil. I'm going to probably pull the last of the plants now and make a big batch of pesto to freeze for the winter time and convert that bed over to some cool season greens, maybe arugula or cilantro or something like that. In the local gardening world, a couple events I wanted to draw your attention to uh, include the Ask an Expert at the Bonsai Pavilion at Meadowlark Botanical Gardens in Vienna, Virginia. This is happening on Saturdays and Sundays from 10 a.m. to 2 p.m. through the end of October. Volunteers from the Northern Virginia Bonsai Society will be at the pavilion to share their knowledge on the fascinating and beautiful art of bonsai. It is free with garden admission to Meadowlark, weather permitting, of course. And then on Sunday, October 1st from 1 to 3 p.m. at the Central Library on North Quincy Street in Arlington, Virginia is the kickoff for Urban Agriculture Month that includes speakers and demonstration sessions. And you can find out more information about all the events for Urban Agriculture Month in Arlington, Virginia at arlingtonurbanag.org. And then at the American Horticultural Society's headquarters, River Farm in Alexandria, Virginia, you can attend a talk on Wednesday, October 11th from 2 to 3 p.m. And that talk is A Life of Learning in the Garden with Holly Shimizu, Executive Director Emirata of the U.S. Botanic Garden. And she will be at AHS and answering questions and describing how you can create a fresh garden and reimagine your existing property designing a garden in process, starting with a look inward at your wants and needs. And this is a fee event. It is $15 for AHS members, $20 for non-members. I highly recommend you join AHS and then go ahead and sign up for that talk after your membership has been completed. You can do so online at ahsgardening.org. And then finally, Lily Hemmer, and you heard that correctly, not Lily Hammer, Lily Hemmer 2023 is taking place October 21st to 22nd, and that is in Camp Hill, Pennsylvania, near Harrisburg. And this is the regional meeting of the Day Lily Societies, and it is open and available for anybody who wants to register and attend and hear all about wonderful daylily breeding. Uh, there's a huge plant raffle, a silent auction, and also great daylilies for sale. And you can find out more about that at ahsregion3.org. And AHS is American Hemerocallus Society. Um, so, and then, or find Lily Hemmer 2023 on Facebook. Happy gardening.
In the new book, The Urban Garden by Kathy Jensen, Terry Spade, you'll find dozens of inspiring and creative ways to grow flowers, shrubs, vegetables, herbs, and other plants in small spaces and with a limited budget. Whether you want to grow on a balcony, rooftop, front stoop, or a tiny urban patio, turn your growing dreams into reality and build a gorgeous and unique garden that showcases your personal style while still being functional and productive. With the ingenious ideas and resourceful tactics found here, you'll be maximizing yields and beauty from every square inch of your space while also making a lush outdoor living area you'll crave spending time in. Whether you're growing edible plants or beautiful flowers, the 101 amazing growing ideas found in the urban garden will turn your tiny urban yard into a treasure trove of green you'll be proud to share with family and friends. Buy your copy today at your local retail bookseller or order it online now at amazon.com or bookshop.org. Get low-maintenance alternative to lawns with the new book, Ground Cover Revolution, by Kathy Jentz. Reducing the lawn is among the biggest trends in home ownership, with an endless stream of homeowners looking for an eco-friendly alternative to a traditional, everyday grass lawn. In the last few years alone, over 23 million American adults converted part of the lawn to a natural landscape, and now are looking to do even more. The biggest challenge to adopting this new ideal of the perfect lawn is knowing how and when to replace your turf and which plants are the best ones for the job. Ground Cover Revolution is here with all the answers you need. Included are 40 in-depth profiles of plants that are perfect choices for replacing a grass lawn. There are options for sun, for shade, for dry and wet sites, and for various climates around the globe. There are choices that bloom, options that are evergreen, and selections that are deer resistant. Author Kathy Jens has also included an incredibly useful chart that gives you all the details on each of the 40 choices for quick reference and to make your ground cover selection process even easier. Whether you want to replace the entire lawn or just reduce the amount of land dedicated to turf, Ground Cover Revolution will help you usher in a new and improved idea of what a beautiful lawn should be. Available at bookstores now and also at Quarto.com, where you can get 30% off using discount code GARDENING30. This is the last word on Growing Container Strawberries by Christy Page at Food Gardening Network. I'm such a fan of all berries. I would love to eat fresh berries all the time. Because of this, I decided it was time to start growing them myself. Nothing is better than freshly picked, ripe berries. After my success with raspberries, I decided I would try strawberries, but this needed a bit more planning. There are a lot of animals in my yard, not just our three adorable dogs and quite often are two grandpups, but also those of the wild variety. The bear, a few bunnies, a mom and a baby fox, some turkeys, a few deer, tons of birds and squirrels, and even on occasion, a bobcat. It seemed like the best way to venture into strawberries was to use containers. Hopefully, with them being slightly off the ground, they'll be less tempting to wildlife. I purchased a nice big round bin, made sure there were holes for drainage, filled it with fresh soil and fertilizer, and planted my new strawberry plants. Luckily, at foodgardening.com, our guide on strawberries has a ton of tips and advice that I could follow. That summer, I had my first strawberries. They were a little small, but still sweet and delicious. I was hooked. I continued to water, feed, and nurture these plants until the fall. Once it started to turn cooler, I realized that my planters were way too big to bring inside and I was going to need to winterize them and keep them outside. I carefully trimmed them back, tucked them in with mulch, and hoped that they would stay cozy and warm all winter long. The next spring came and I anxiously checked my strawberries for signs of life. It seemed to take forever, but all of a sudden, new green leaves and stems started flourishing. Before long, I was seeing flowers that contained the promise of strawberries to come. As the bees happily flitted around my little plants, my excitement grew. That summer, I had berries that were larger than the prior year and every bit as sweet. It's always so much fun to go out and pluck the fresh warm strawberries that are just waiting to be eaten. Of course, with as much wildlife as we have, it is not always smooth sailing. I did go out one day to see a bunny nibbling on a berry that was dangling over the side of the container. I really can't blame him as the berry looked like it was just there waiting for him. I shooed him away, but unfortunately had to toss out the damaged strawberry. He hasn't been back that I've seen, but I am keeping a very close watch. In the meantime, 
I'll continue to go out to gather my fresh sweet strawberries, and sometimes I even share them with the other people in my house. This has been The Last Word on Strawberries by Christy Page with foodgardening.com. Thank you for listening to Garden DC. You can become a listener supporter for as little as 99 cents a month by going to anchor.fm slash garden DC slash support. Another way to support this podcast is to subscribe to our monthly digital publication, Washington Gardener Magazine. To do so, go to washingtongardener.com. Thank you. You can find Washington Gardener online at WashingtonGardener.com, on Twitter at WDC Gardener, on Instagram at WDC Gardener, and on Facebook.com at Washington Gardener Magazine.